it sort of culminates too, because I, right the same month that I found out I had cancer, I had just been accepted. I had tested and been accepted as a Playboy centerfold. Now I know that sounds like why, you know, it seemed like, why would I go down that road if I didn't like all this attention? But like I said, I started to think that that was the validation I needed. It's like, I needed that validation, even though I didn't like it, but I really needed the money. So Mm -hmm. I was going to use that money to go to school. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden I lost everything. And the one thing that I thought I was valued for, which was my appearance, I'm losing while Mm. I'm going through these cancer treatments. We want to start and, 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 you know, definitely want to respect your time as well. And, and Tana, how we the, normally how the show goes about, we, we talk about the journey on this show and Perfect. we want to go back into, you know, how you grew up, where you grew up, um, you know, family life, the, you know, the dynamics there and, and then bring it forward to where we are currently. Are you going to read her Excellent. bio though? Because yeah. yes, I don't know if you've ever that. felt inferior in your life. <laughs> yeah, I'm about Please. Reading, reading this kidding? bio. So. Well, listen, first thing my husband said, he's like, I'm so jealous. How come I didn't get invited? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm going to read the bio. If I, if I can't do it, then I'm going to have Tyler do it. So uh, either way. So, well, and, and to that point, we would love to have your husband on at some point. If, if, if you decide that Perfect. we're worthy of, of speaking with him, we would love to have him on as well. Why are you glowing over there say, by yourself? Because have you read this? Yeah. Well, yes, but I'm saying you're glowing over there oh. in the light. Oh, oh yeah. Light. I, I positioned the sunlight perfectly to, to shine on me because it, it should always shine on me, the star of the show. Tanner, this is Ben Gibbs, and Ben is... We usually try to keep him behind the, behind the scenes. He makes this thing roll, but every once in a while we'll put him in front of camera. So we got three former athletes Mm -hmm. and we're a bunch of idiots. So just bear with us. Yeah. All right. So this is fun. So I'm going to read. Yeah. Tana's bio. Uh, Can you read? I I, I think so. I think I can still (laughs) read. Let's ask for everyone's patience as we go through this. Where are your glasses? Breathe with me. (laughs) Just breathe with me all at once. Tana. Amon is the New York Times best-selling author, vice president of the Amon Clinics, a neurosurgical ICU trauma nurse, and a world-renowned health and fitness expert. Bro, look, hey, I told you that's one sentence. That's, in. One, that's, that's only one. one. That's one sentence. We still guys. got four sentences to go. <laughs> okay, breathe. <laughs> she has won the hearts of millions with her simple yet effective strategies to help anyone optimize their lifestyle and win the fight for a strong body, mind, and spirit. Tana holds a second degree black belt in Kempo Karate and a black belt in Taekwondo. She's kicking your ass. I was just going to say, not only is she smarter, more successful, <laughs> beautiful, then she, she can also your ass. kick my butt. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> Tana and her husband, Dr. Daniel Amon, have four children and five grandchildren. Her latest book, The Relentless Courage of a Scared Child, How Persistence, Grit, and Faith Created a Reluctant Healer, will release nationwide January 5th, 2021. I can't, listen, we're reading your bio, Tana, I know we're joking around. This is serious. This is, your accomplishments speak volumes. And for, you know, just reading your bio is just amazing. And I know Ben, before we got on, Ben was talking about you in particular. And, And on our show, with our listeners, we want to go back on your journey. 
because we we're, we're seeing the accomplishments, but how you got to this point, we want to go back. Can you give us, fill us in on, and Tyler, I want you to jump in because you're, Tyler's going to always narrate the show here. So <laughs> he's going to, he's leaving me hanging right now. Uh, but we want to go back into your, 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 into your childhood, where you grew up. Give us a start and some color of your background. So, yes, thank you so much for having me on. Um, so I wrote this book. Um, it actually took me a long time to decide to write it. Um, I think, you know, when people, if people criticize you for your health and wellness advice, okay, so what? But if they criticize your memoir and your life story, that's a little different. Yeah. So it, it took me a long time to write this because it's pretty vulnerable. Um, you know, I grew up, I think like a lot of people probably listening, um, it was challenging. My, my, you know, my childhood was challenging. It was very chaotic. It was, you know, the word trauma seems up until recently seemed so weird to say, because when you grow up in it, it seems normal. Um, even though you know it's not right, it still just feels like you're normal. Mm -hmm. uh, but my first few memories, you know, I write about this in the book. I remember almost drowning. I remember looking up and not being able to see the side of the pool. I wasn't, my I had snuck away from my mom. She didn't notice. And I fell into a pool and I was saved by my dog. How old were you? How old were you? Oh I was two. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so I have very vivid memories of my youth and I did call and clarify and get the details, you know, make sure that I actually had the details correct when I was writing this book. Um, but my dog who followed me everywhere, I had this German shepherd that I just loved and he was the most consistent, reliable male in my life. So, you know, I still have a thing about German mm. shepherds just for that reason. Mm. Um, but he saved my life. And then my next memory was being left alone. And I remember waking up being terrified and just completely just panic stricken. I was about two and a half. I was left alone. Everyone just sort of forgot me. And, um, and then my third memory was my uncle being murdered in a drug deal gone wrong. Mm. So I had one uncle who was a heroin addict and the next one, um, he was murdered because of my other, um, because of my uncle who was a heroin addict, my other uncle was murdered. And so it was just total pandemonium and chaos in my house with the police there, everyone screaming. But the point being that those are my first three memories. And when you grow up in an environment where there's constant screaming, chaos, police being called addiction, uh, mental illness, you start to think that, you know, that you're always looking for what's next. I was always looking for that tiger around the corner. Mm -hmm. It wasn't safe. And my mom was not really around. She was a 16 year old runaway. She had left home because her environment was even worse than mine. And so she never finished high school. She was actually homeless and on the street for a little while. Um, and she's tough. She's one tough woman. She was determined to pull us out of that same environment that she had grown up in. She was determined that she was going to become successful financially. And eventually she did. But when I was a child, she was not, we were poor. And so I was left alone. I mean, I was a latchkey kid or I was left even worse. I was left with people who, you know, caused a lot of harm. Mm -hmm. So I actually preferred being left alone. I, when oh, I was man. finally five and able to stay home alone, I was grateful. At when five. you were five. Yeah. You were yeah. able to be left alone. Wow. Yeah. Oh my so, and I think there are a lot of people who are listening who probably grew up like that. Mm -hmm. You know, so. Yeah. Well, Darren, your story, not, not, maybe not a few of those details, but. You talk about how you were left alone quite a bit yeah. because your mother was working, working so hard yeah. to provide for you guys. Yeah. But, I, you know, I'm picturing this now because I have a four-year-old right now. Mm -hmm. And Tyler has, you know, all three of us have young children. Um, there's no way. Mm -hmm. There's right. no there's no way. Right. I have a daughter and I, I like, I 
I didn't let her walk to school when she was in high school. Yeah. So I'm like, I just can't imagine. My wife won't you let know? our kids ride the school bus. She goes, no way. They are right. not riding the bus. I'm like, I was like in kindergarten riding exactly. to the bus by myself. Well, something I'm curious about, because it's one thing to go through those situations at any time, any age, but how is a five-year-old and a two-year-old and a young person when your brain's, I mean, and you know, I'm not going to try to talk your world, but you know this more than I do. Your brain's not even fully developed till whatever age. Right. How did you conceptualize these situations? What, what's going on in your head on a day-to-day basis? The only thing I can remember. So I think that you can't process certain things like, like, just like you're pointing out, you can't really process things. So if you have a child who's, who visualizes and sees a fire and they, they try to describe what they saw versus an adult, it's going to be bigger, brighter, hotter to the, to the child than it is to the adult who can process it and has more life experience. Um, so it's, it seems bigger, scarier because it, because you don't have the, the ability to protect yourself. So everything seems scarier, Mm. but because you can't really process it like that. I mean, for me, I just figured out that hiding was safer. Being invisible was how I was going to stay out of trouble. Um, not have people who I knew were, um, let's say just going to cause harm to me. Um, just be invisible. I'd hide. And so I also became very timid. And so I didn't have much of a voice Mm. when I was really young because I just, I wanted to stay, you know, unseen. And I think a lot of kids do that when they're in these types of environments. And so, you know, we have veterans who go to war and new studies have shown that when veterans come home from war, you know, the PTSD that goes on in their brain, we're well aware of what that does to someone's brain now. But new studies have shown that children who grow up in that kind of trauma and chaos have the same type of emotional trauma in their brain. Mm. Their brain shows the exact same trauma Mm. as a veteran who's gone to war. So it's, it's really hard on kids. So, and and I'm sure you talk about this in the book and and I want to get to the book later, but um, those times that you were young and you had caretakers that caused harm. um, I mean, was that ever a, a conversation you had with your mother or did you feel safe enough to be able to open up and say, Hey, I don't feel safe here. Um, I need, because I can't imagine, you know, I, I can't imagine, you know, a young woman, let alone a young child and, and, and to go through those circumstances and feel that unsafe. I mean, if you don't feel safe with people that you're left that are in charge of you, where can you feel safe? So right. how do you have those conversations or, or does it just, I mean, do you internalize? Do you feel like, Hey, that's just what is supposed to happen? I mean, like Ben asked, you know, how do you it's, process? It's like I said, I'm not sure it's rational when you're that age. Um, mm-hmm. I started to have a lot of physical manifestations and I didn't, I mean, of course I didn't know that that was, they were connected at all. Right. Um, but I was sick all the time. I mean, I was mm-hmm. really sick. I had upper and lower, you know, gastrointestinal studies done when I was four after it was mm-hmm. two weeks after the murder of my uncle. Mm-hmm. Um, but I had like, I remember one babysitter, you know, one of the problems with children who are put into situations like that. And when you have an adult who uses power over a child to do something harmful is that they're manipulative. So I had a babysitter who she would make me smoke cigarettes and kiss the little boy. She was, you know, babysitting and do just do fairly twisted things. But she would tell me that she was going to tell my mother these lies that I did things that I didn't do. And I was always the good girl. Like my mom would always praise me for how good I was. It's like, she's like, I'm so grateful that you're such a good kid because I can't be here because I have to work so much. And I, I 
loved being the good girl. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, to have her tell my mother that I did these terrible things, I was horrified. Mm -hmm. So I would just be quiet. And so I I did what she said because I didn't want her to lie to my mom and tell her that I did these terrible things. You know, and then I also had my uncle, who's a heroin addict, walking around the house. Now, fortunately, he never really tried to hurt me, but I was terrified of him and his friends. Mm. So I would just kind of hide and I would just go away. But I remember them with their long, greasy hair. To this day, I can't hear certain 70s music. It just is like mm. nails on a chalkboard yeah. to me. Wow. It oh just, gosh. it's just, my husband will turn on Cat Stevens and I'm like, <sighs> you nope. need to shut that off. Like, I just can't take it um, because it reminds me, I don't hear the music. I hear the memories. Oh. You know, it's, it's, it's scary. So at, at what age did some, and I, and I say normalcy, when did it start to shift to where, okay, Hey, like I, I am not defined by the circumstances around me. And now I, there's opportunity, whether it's school, whether it's health, whether it's sports, what was it for you that, that was able to get you out of that situation and into something productive? Oh, well, unfortunately it was a little rockier than that. Okay. <laughs> so, um, so, you know, it, as long as I was in my house, it was chaotic. Okay. So yeah. my mom was always working. She chose, she was great as far as, you know, just sort of being a butt kicker. Yeah. Um, she worked three jobs. She started her own business. She ended up retiring very, very wealthy. Even though I grew up poor, mm. she retired wealthy. You guys are into real estate. Well, my mom, she figured out real estate somehow. And we lived poor even after we weren't poor because she was investing constantly. Yeah. And so now she retired super wealthy, but at that time, yeah, life was very, very different. And she chose men the way Custer chose fights. And so <laughs> that was another issue. So I remember at 12, my first stepdad climbed in bed with me. Fortunately, mm. my mom believed me. So yeah. that was the first time I learned how to use my voice because okay. that was a different level of terrifying. That was a different level of abuse. And I hadn't had that happen yet. So when he, when he climbed in bed with me and several situations, several situations had happened that led up to that. And I knew like, this is a whole different level of like, uh Oh. And so I knew I had to tell my mom. And when I did, she believed me, she actually set him up and she caught him and she almost killed him. Mm. Um, so, I mean, she physically attacked him and it was just another crazy situation to be a part of Um, my second stepdad. Um, Never put a hand on me, but his nickname for me was sexy bitch when I was 14. Wow. 14. So, and that's you know, the second one. So the first, the first encounter was younger than that. I mean, no, yeah, no, I was not even 12. Oh my God. So yeah, it was pretty crazy. So my second stepdad, um, I couldn't, we had this like very weird relationship cause I couldn't stand him cause of the way he talked to me. And at the same time, I, I became very confused cause he also protected me. Mm. So it was mm. sort of confusing. And so I developed very early. And so I got a lot of very negative attention from not boys, but men. Mm-hmm. And so that became weird because I didn't like it. But yet at the same time, I thought it's what was expected of me to look a certain way. And if mm-hmm. I didn't and I didn't get that attention, then I felt like something was wrong with me. And so you start to crave this attention that you hate. Mm-hmm. And so I was, I mean, I was just prime for a code red identity crisis. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and that's what happened. Um, you know, I just, I started to go down this other road, you know, modeling and that whole, um, acting and, and that just created, you know, I was, I was back then you could get away with, they could get away with a whole lot more than they can get away with now. And so I would go to these jobs without my mom and that was just a whole nother can of worms. Um, so a whole bunch of things stacked. I had these stacked stressors that occurred in my teens and sort of culminated with this date rape situation. And I found myself one day just 
I couldn't handle the stress in my life. It felt so out of control. I felt like there was nowhere to turn. It was completely unsafe. I just didn't know what to do anymore. And I felt like maybe I'm just not as smart as other girls Mm -hmm. because why does this chaos follow me? Why does this drama follow me? Like, I, I don't even know what to do with it anymore. And I found myself over a toilet bowl one day and I'm like, it was like, I developed this eating disorder as a way to sort of control my environment. Mm. And I didn't, I would like suffered silently for years and I figured out, okay, I can't really do the eating disorder behavior. And I write this whole story in my book about why I sort of transferred that eating disorder behavior into, um, a different form of purging. So I stopped purging that way, but I started purging with exercise. So that extreme exercise became my new way of managing my anxiety. Mm -hmm. So not in a healthy way, in a really unhealthy way, but it was better than the alternative, at least. Let me ask you Um, this. Uh, Sorry, I I don't mean to cut you off, but through that time, through your teen years, how did that impact your relationship with your peers, you know, whether it's girls or guys, I mean, did you have any, anybody that you could actually confide in and have these conversations or, I mean, was it the other way where you could, you push people away because of the environment at home? So when I was, um, so shortly after the situation where I was molested by my stepdad, um, we moved away from him and in junior high, so I was always the nerd, the geeky kid when I was, you know, when I was young, I was super skinny, geeky, awkward. Um, and then all of a sudden in my, I decided I was like, I made this conscious effort. I'm going to change this. I don't like this. I started sort of watching, you know, girls that I thought were popular and like, what am I going to do? How am I going to like do my hair differently? And I made this conscious transformation on my own. I became a cheerleader in you know, eighth grade. And so junior high, junior high was actually good. I actually developed this group of friends, these girls that were cheerleaders that became like sisters to me. And so that was actually a really good time in my life. The time that's usually terrible for most kids was actually a good time for me. And so I really loved, you know, eighth, ninth, 10th grade. And then we moved, we moved to a new town at the end of my 10th grade year when I was very developed and life at home was terrible, but I at least had these girls to rely on. And now I've got no one. And I, the kids that teased me for the way I looked, but in a loving way, I lost that. Now the kids that teased me, it was more in a bullying way. Mm -hmm. And I was literally bullied for the way I looked in high school, just for being overdeveloped. And I, it was such a weird thing to go from being this kid who was sort of not seen when she was really young, because I was that geeky, awkward kid to this kid who now can't get away from this attention, but it wasn't positive attention. And so it was really hard. And I became very withdrawn again. Right. So, so you now I would just walk through school with my books, you know, over my chest and wow. not talk to anybody. Yeah. So now you, is it, did it force you to be an introvert now? Are you back to being yeah. introverted back at home and, and, and away from, you know, you know, being around the, the other kids your age or, you know, how, what, 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 what did that look like? You know, there's this sort of dichotomy that was going on because I was very introverted um, when I was out, but after the situation that happened with my stepfather, I did sort of learn to use my voice to protect myself, Mm -hmm. but not in a positive way. So before I ever found balance, which took a long time and, you know, for me to figure out how to use my voice in a proactive way that was balanced, I'd say I used it more as a weapon. Mm -hmm. So if someone did get too close to me, I was like, I I could be pretty caustic. Mm -hmm. So I was introverted, but if you got too close or if you did something that I thought was going to be potentially harmful, I could be pretty vicious. Okay. So, um, it was, it was a really hard time, a a hard way to try to live your teen years, but a protective mechanism that you had to create because of your history. Yeah, no, absolutely. And then, so now fast forward, um, I just start to think I'm getting my life together in my early twenties. And then I was diagnosed with cancer. Mm. And so 
dropped mm. out of school, quit my job. And while I'm going through radiation treatments, my mother had brain surgery. And I went through this wicked depression. So I lose everything. And so it, it sort of culminates too, because I right the same month that I found out I had cancer, I had just been accepted. I had tested and been accepted as a Playboy centerfold. Now I know that sounds like why, you know, it seemed like, why would I go down that road if I didn't like all this attention? But like I said, I started to think that that was the validation I needed. It's like, I needed that validation, even though I didn't like it, but I really needed the money. So Mm -hmm. I was going to use that money to go to school. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden I lost everything. And the one thing that I thought I was valued for, which was my appearance, I'm losing while Mm. I'm going through these cancer treatments. So so, so that's your identity. So you basically became, your looks became your identity. They did. And, and then all of a sudden, here comes cancer, and now you're starting all over again, basically. I am. And the friends I had also developed during that time were around that world. Yeah. So guess where those friends went when I was not uh, able to be a part of that world anymore? I, I, yeah. I lost all of that. So, so. This, there's so many, so many questions spinning through my mind. I guess the first place I go to, when you, were, when you heard the diagnosis of cancer for the first time, all of these challenges you had faced up to this point in your life were so out of your control. And here's another one that's out of your control. I'm just curious how you approached challenges, meaning, uh, yeah, I'll just leave it at that. Not in a healthy way. <laughs> I, at that time in my life, I had no really healthy strategies or coping mechanisms. When I heard I had cancer, it was so interesting because I had just found out that I was, had been accepted. You know, I'd just been told, oh, you tested, you're accepted. We're going to call and give you this date just to hold tight. You know, hang tight. We'll call and give you the date that you're going to um, be scheduled for this centerfold shoot. I'm like, okay. And then I get the call from my doctor saying, um, you've got, I mean, I hate to tell you this, but you've got cancer. He's like, that's the bad news. The good news is mm. it's a slow growing type of cancer. You know, we can do surgery. We can do radiation. You're, we're going to get your life back to normal. He was trying to be kind. Mm. Um, we didn't realize at the time it had metastasized and that's not what happened. Oh. The story became very different. Um, but when he, as soon as he said cancer, number one, I was in shock. I, I was like, I it just wasn't registering. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm in I my twenties. I can't fit. have cancer. Right. Yeah. No. And I was super fit. Yeah. I'm like, how can I be accepted as a playboy centerfold and yeah. have cancer be rotting on the inside? That doesn't even make sense to me. So I sort of wasn't processing it. And then all of a sudden I latched onto the one thing he said, which is it's slow growing. That's the good news. And I'm like, mm. okay, good. Well, we're going to postpone all of this. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. I'm not doing this right now. I'm like, I have this other thing I have to do that's super important that I need the money for. And he's like, I don't think you're understanding what I'm saying. He's like, I'm trying to comfort you and make sure you understand you're not going to die, but you need to do this right away. Mm. And, mm. and, and I, I couldn't process it. I just, I couldn't process it. So it ultimately I ended up going into this wicked depression. I thought, you know, if there's a God, he doesn't love me. Mm. Why mm. should I love him? He's totally like, but there's probably not one. Cause this is just ridiculous. Mm. And I just, I remember just, one day wishing that this truck that was driving next to me would just cross the line and kill me. Mm. I'm like, I'm wasting oxygen on the planet. There is just no purpose. I was just going to ask what thoughts, you know, was there ever thoughts of either a running away from these issues or running away from home or B like you just talked about taking your own life? Oh yeah. I couldn't even get out of bed. I could not get out of bed. It was terrible. It's, it's a, it is a pain. Like, when people tell me they're depressed, I feel like so often that word is thrown away, thrown around in a way that we just minimize. We don't really understand what people are saying. Mm-hmm. Depression was the one thing. I mean, fortunately, the type of cancer I had was not terminal, but I did go through multiple surgeries, radiation treatments, 
the one thing that was worse than all of that was depression. Mm. It was just awful. So what was your support system at the time? You said you mentioned your mother was having brain surgery mm-hmm. at the time. So she was going through her own set of circumstances as well. Was it, was there any support system at all set in place for you? Not really. And my mom, um, we have an interesting relationship because we're close, but she doesn't handle anything that happens to me very well. Number one. And number two, she's always gone. She's always working. Mm -hmm. So as much as she's like, I know she loves me. She's not really there. Mm -hmm. Um, I never, ever had to doubt her love for me. That's the one positive thing. And I think that that really does make a big difference. It's not like I was abused by her or I, I never doubted her love for me. It's just that she was never really present. So that, that was hard. And so I really did feel like I was going through it alone. And that was really hard. Um, at some point she just got tired of my, she didn't understand this depression I was going through. She drug me out of the house. She's like, you're going outside. Like I'm done with this. And she just didn't really get it. And I, I ended up going, I remember I was out with her. She was shopping and I found this book about Prozac and I'm like, Oh, that is what's wrong. Oh my God, there's hope. Like, I just remember feeling like there's hope to get out of this darkness. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, this is what I need. And so I call the doctor and I I make the first appointment I can get in with. It ended up being a resident psychiatrist. That should have been my first clue that I could get in so quickly. (laughs) So I go to this resident psychiatrist and I wasn't even there to talk to him about anything. I'm like, I know what I need. And I was insistent. He prescribed me Prozac. Mm. So what I didn't know is Prozac was the wrong drug for me. Mm. It was hundred percent the wrong drug for me. I went from being a super anxious person who obsessed about every thought, even though I had made bad decisions in my life, a lot of them actually, um, I still obsessed about them. Like I was worried all the time. I went from being anxious to being dangerously impulsive and just making insane decisions for about eight months. I mean, that, that drug could have just seriously ruined my life. So it was pretty crazy. So I, I write a lot about that in the book because mm-hmm. I think there are a lot of people who we're not against, like at our clinics, we're not against medication. If you need medication, you know, it's like withholding glasses from someone who needs yeah. glasses, yeah. Right? right? But we're against the indiscriminate use of it. Yeah. And just prescribing them willy-nilly. That's a fix-all for whatever Absolutely. underlying issues that are there. Right. So how long, okay, so how long was it, and, and I'm going to try to put this timeline here, is from when you were diagnosed to cancer, went through that really, you know, went through treatment, went through radiation, surgeries, and then depression, and then on top of that, the, the Prozac. Crazy behavior. Yeah, the crazy <laughs> behavior. So what is that time frame that, that we're looking at? You know, is that a majority of your twenties? About a year and a half. Okay, okay. It's about so, a year and a half for okay. all of it. Yeah. So, so talk us through talk us through what happened next. I mean, you, you so do you recognize do you recognize that okay, this is this is not me. This is not the life that I can yes. continue. Yeah. So it got worse before it got better, and I went back to the doctor and said, "This, I'm not behaving like me." I mean, I ended up doing some pretty crazy stuff. I, I on a dare went to Costa Rica and got left there with no passport. I mean, it was, I did crazy. (laughs) (laughs) Guys, Costa Rica is beautiful, but there's some Uh, sketchiness there for sure. I went to South Dallas one time. (laughs) So it's, I mean, I'm telling you, I could have ruined my life. So, um, so that was when I realized, okay, this is like, something's not right. I just didn't feel anything. I didn't feel depressed, but I didn't feel much of anything. And I remember calling the doctor and going this, I'm not acting like me. Mm-hmm. Something's not right. When it's you doing it though, it's really hard to be introspective. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I knew like my behavior, I could just look back at my past behavior and go, that's just not right. Like yeah. something's not right. Here. But at least you, re- so, Tanny, at least you, you recognize that. I mean, even through yeah. the craziness, 
you recognize this is not this is not me. Like I, no, I need to go back. Me. Yeah. And so I called him, and when I said that, his words to me, he had already doubled my medication once when I told oh. him I didn't feel right. He said, at least you're not depressed. I think maybe if we increase your medication, you'll have a better response. Is this guy still a resident? Or is he now I, officially? I don't know. A- <laughs> I think he should have been arrested. So, yeah. Um, yeah, wow. I was so frustrated. And I just, I hung up the phone and I thought, you know, Doogie's got some growing up to do. And it's not going to be at my expense. Yeah. So right. he's, he's got, he's got to do his. Mm, good for you. Maturing mm. on his own. Yeah. I took myself off the medication to anyone listening. Mm. Please do not do that. Wow. Please do not well, do that. You mm-hmm. need to, you're. You need to have a doctor. Please hear me clearly as a medical professional. Your doctor is not your daddy or your mommy or your boss. You need to have a doctor who is your partner. And that's what I didn't have. But if, if you, that happens to you, find a doctor to help you wean yourself off of these medications. You can have serious consequences by going off. Fortunately, I didn't. I actually felt better almost immediately. Mm. Um, so I went off the medication on my own and, and my life began to get better almost immediately. So talk us through that. Talk us through those steps because I'm, I'm reading your, we're reading your profile and, and from your mid twenties to now, that's unbelievable accomplishments in just that time. So how did, how did you redirect from, you know, potential destructive path that you are on to now helping millions of people find wellness? So I had two important things that happened right around that time. Um, after I, well, three, cause first of all, I went and got back into school. I dropped out <clears throat> when I was going through all my treatments and I kept trying to finish, but I had to keep going through surgeries and treatments. So finally I was like focused and I got back into school, but I met two, I met two important mentors and one of them, it's really fun. It's a story in my book. It's a full circle moment because it's my uncle who was the heroin addict. So that was really awesome. Um, he's no longer a heroin addict. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't know what your better was. Like, honestly, <laughs> things got better. I'm like, okay, what is better? <laughs> yeah. He was no longer a heroin addict. He, um, he had clean, obviously cleaned up and he had be, um, become a mentor and had started doing some, um, coaching and mentoring in juvenile halls. Mm-hmm. But then he also started doing seminars and so he called me, he's, my mom told him, you know, things are going a little sideways for her. And so he called me and he's like, you know, I'm doing the seminar in Hawaii. I want you to come out and spend some time with me and go through the seminar with me. And I thought, you know, there's no seminar that's going to help me right now. There's no self-help seminar that's going to work, but a trip to Hawaii, that could be good. So <laughs> I was in it for Hawaii. Right. <laughs> but I went there and he taught me more in an hour than I learned in the seminar or any seminar going forward. And it changed the trajectory of my life. He sat down with me one day and he said, so how much responsibility are you willing to take for where your life is at? And I, I said, well, I can't take responsibility for cancer. I, you lost me. Mm-hmm. Uh, that wasn't my idea of a good time. And he's like, I didn't ask you how much blame you were willing to take. He said, how much responsibility are you willing to take the ability to respond? Huh. Mm. And I paused for a minute and he drew the circle and he put a line through it. He said, you know, this half of the circle is 50%. The other half is 50%. If you take 50% responsibility, then you have 50% ability to respond and change the outcome. The other 50% someone else has control over. And I was just like light switch moment. And I thought, I don't want anybody having that much control. Mm. I can take responsibility if it means ability to respond. I just don't really want to take the blame for something that I didn't have control over. And it just switched everything for me. And just for some reason that stuck with me forever. And to to this day, responsibility is my favorite word. Mm. So that was huge for me. That, and 
That yeah. would sorry. Let's camp on that. For I was going to say we can't just breeze over that. Yeah. That <laughs> is such gold. It's not. It's not mm-hmm. even funny because. Yeah. And the reason I say that because you look around, especially this year, and you think about all the things that are out of your control. Mm-hmm. And we talk about the victim mentality, right? That I, I can't control this. It's happened to me as opposed to me doing so. And a conversation we've had with Darren, you know, life in the inner city where, where Darren grew up yeah. and, and understanding what these people are going through. Cause it's easy to tell somebody, Hey, do something about it or take responsibility. But if you don't truly understand where they come from, it's hard to really get yourself there. So it's fascinating for me to hear from you who went through everything that you went through. And everything that happened to you, to have that perspective of, no, I take responsibility. That's such a good thing to hear. Yeah. Oh, and, I, and it changes everything. It changes how you approach any problem. And it changes how you parent. So my daughter, you know, every kid does this. My daughter would come to me and she's it's not fair. And I'm like, no one told you life was going to be mm-hmm. fair. Fair is no. a place with bad food and farm animals. The question <laughs> I have for you is, what are you doing about it? What are you going to do to make a difference? Oh, that's awesome. And, that's how I would, she would always look at me like, what? Well, I, I'm so confused. I have no idea, but she would, you know, she would take off and she had no idea what I was talking about, but she knew I wasn't going to just play into it's not yeah. there. And that's, and that's what I wish I, I was a kid. I wish I listened to the, the mom and dad comments, right? The well, right. life isn't fair, you know, and, and that whole deal, but like the truth that's behind it because our culture has lost so much of the idea of responsibility. It's someone mm-hmm. else's responsibility to take care of me. It's someone else's responsibility to fix this problem that I have. It's not my fault. I didn't do it, so I don't have to fix mm-hmm. it. But th- if you take accountability and responsibility and say, I'm going to respond, whether it's good or bad that's happened to me, it's yeah. up to me to make those circumstances move back in the direction that I want them to. Whether it's, you know, continuing on the same path or changing the trajectory like yourself, you, you literally could have laid down and said, okay, with everything that happened with my babysitters, with my uncles, with my stepfathers, with cancer, cancer yeah. with j- abuse in relationships early on, uh, all of those things, my mother getting sick, I could, I, it is what it is. And guess what? I'm, it, I'm, it's not my responsibility. And you could have yeah. been a victim your entire life as opposed to and taking charge I of it. Been. I had mm-hmm. been a victim. I didn't think I was, but I was. Mm. That's, I mean, I think that's important Yeah. because yes, like there can be situations that, that do occur out of your control and like, not like cancer, for example, like Ben said, but if you play into the victim mentality, if you let that control you and, I, and look, and I, and I'm, I'm seriously so thankful that, that you battled through that. And, and I, my sympathy goes for anyone that's, that's, Hand, going through any sickness or, or any challenge in their life. Look, I, I am empathetic. I, I totally am. But if you let that control what happens next, then you then yeah. have let that, that act, that sickness, that disease, that relationship, then they now have even greater impact on your life. And they now mm-hmm. control you and let, instead of you controlling your own life. So I love that. hundred percent. I love that. So you're you're in Hawaii at this time, right? Mm-hmm. With your uncle. Yeah. All right. So yeah. give us the next steps. What happens? Because he sounds like you you that was your aha moment. The responsibility. That was my aha moment. And then the the, the next thing that happened was, and I write a lot in my book about my struggles with my dad. So you know we all have daddy issues, but I had serious <laughs> daddy issues. My dad had abandoned me when I was little. He left. He was gone. He did drugs with my other uncle with my uncle, and so he left. He comes back with a new wife <clears throat> at some point. And he'd become a Baptist minister, but he also embezzled money from the church and then later did drugs with my sister. And 
my, so my spiritual walk was very, um, rocky. (laughs) Yes. Very tested. So for me, I just, you know, I thought this guy trying to teach me about some dude in white robes is just how am I supposed to listen to this when I, I can't even get him to like show up when I need him. Mm -hmm. So I just, I didn't really want to hear it from him. Um, but then at some point I, I have this mentor that shows up in my life. She's like a second mother to me. I literally just get back from Hawaii and this woman shows up in my life and she's like, you know, I end up living with her, um, basically as a house sitter, dog sitter, but she comes into my life and she was just an amazing human. And I end up getting my spiritual walk back together. And for me, that was huge, but not just because I felt like that really made a huge difference for me. And everybody's got their own ideas of what that means to them. But for me, it was about separating my dad from what my spiritual walk meant to me. It's like, my dad's not God. Why am I going to let my dad, who I have these issues with, control the outcome of my life, especially with something as important to me as the purpose of my life, like my spiritual walk. And when I'm talking to people at Amen Clinics, we treat people according to four circles, biological, psychological, social, and spiritual. All of them are important. What's going on with your body? What's going on with your mind? Are you controlling your mind? The people you hang out with, your social circle, because they're contagious, but also your spiritual. And we understand people are coming from all different places in the world and, and in life. But even if you're not religious, having purpose, something that's bigger than you are, mm-hmm. means you feel faster, you live longer, and you are happier. And so for me, I thought, I, when I realized, you know, I've been letting this man rob me of something because he's not perfect, because he's human. And it just, I disconnected those two things. And so my spiritual walk then became my own, and it became a really important part of my life. And for, that's just an important thing to me. And, and I realized, you know, I know a lot of really powerful people and it's going to take something way bigger than that for me to get out of the hole I've dug for myself, for me to be happy, for me to move to this other place of purpose in my life. Mm-hmm. And that just, it, it elevated me to a new level. Mm-hmm. And, you know, healing doesn't happen in a straight line. Right. Um, so I, there were bumps along the way, but mm-hmm. it kept moving in the right direction. Yeah. So how old are you at this time? I was about 24, 25, you know, and that speaks volumes. Look, look, I mean, what the things that, and Tyler just mentioned what you've overcome the, you know, you figured out that you needed to be more responsible. You figured out that you're not, you can no longer be the victim, but then also getting to this point on a spiritual side of things and going at 24 years old, understanding I'm going to make some tough decisions. And And I'm going back. I'm saying this because do you think it was because, you had to be, you grew up at an early age. I mean, you were young. You grew up really early. At 12 years old, you were making grown-up decisions. At five, maybe at 10 years old, you were making grown-up decisions. Do you think you were just really mature at 24? I think I was always pretty mature, to be honest with you, yes. Um, so I think when you grow up poor, you grow up fast anyways. Yeah. But, um, but I, yes, I was mature, but I also think life experiences, you know, you either let them crush you, you either become the victim like we just talked about, or you develop resilience. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, one thing I always did is I, I always tended to minimize those situations. Like even when I met my husband and that was sort of the next step in, in my journey. But I remember telling him some of the things about my, my childhood. And he, I remember him looking at me and going, wow. And when a psychiatrist says that, that's not a good thing. <laughs> right. so, like, and I was like, what, what are you talking about? Like, it's not that abnormal. Like, you know, a lot of people grow up like that. But I think that's what resilient people do. They tend to minimize some of the craziness that they've grown up in. Mm -hmm. 
-hmm. you minimize it because Mm -hmm. it's how you survive. It's like, well, it could have been worse. Other people have it worse. Mm -hmm. And so you tend to minimize things. And I don't think I ever really truly realized how chaotic some of those things were until I did work on myself till I chose to go to therapy. Like I never could say the word molested. I actually didn't believe I was molested here. My stepdad climbed in bed with me mm-hmm. and, you know, had his hand up my shirt and the whole, I, mean, I won't go into details, but I didn't think I was molested because I'm like, well, other people have had it worse. Mm-hmm. You know, they've been raped for years. And so I couldn't bring myself to say those things because it made me feel too much like a victim. Right. right. So, it was weird, but it's after I finally did the healing, I could say things for what they were. Right. It's right. like, I never, I never used the term date rape. I'm like, no, that was probably my fault. I actually took the blame for that one. Cause I'm like, I was out with this person. Maybe I dressed wrong. But when I finally healed enough, it's like, no, I can just call it like it is. Right. He was a jerk. He didn't have a right. To, he didn't have the right to put his hands on me uninvited. Yeah. Period. End yeah. of story. Maybe I could have done something different. I'll take responsibility. But at the same time, nobody has the right to do that. And so you just, you can call it like it is and just, you know, be very clear. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think though that, you know, you mentioned resilient people, they minimize things and they do that. Do you think that you have to overcome that in order to heal or can you heal? Do you have to heal first to be able to recognize them for what they are? No, I think resilient people are often in the middle of, of the mess and they haven't healed yet. I think they show resilience because they are just going on. Okay. I think I was resilient all along. The problem is I was also putting band-aids, multiple band-aids over bullet holes. Okay. I was like, at some point that that dam was going to burst. Yeah. Um, so I was, resi- I mean, I was actually, so you mentioned accomplishments. When I met my husband, I was already pretty accomplished. Mm-hmm. So when I, because accomplishment and perfectionism became my weapon. They became how I kept people from seeing how broken I felt inside. Mm -hmm. So being accomplished, graduating top of my class when I went back to school, um, Mm -hmm. you know, getting a job in one of the toughest units in the hospital, owning two homes. My mom, who's in real estate, Mm -hmm. instilled that in me, Um, you know, having no bills. Like those were things, you know, always being made up, always being dressed, you know, a certain way. Those, Those things became my shield so that I didn't, people couldn't see the brokenness. And so I felt very broken. Even when I met my husband, I'd gone through a terrible divorce. And so I, I had done a lot of work. I was better than I was, Mm -hmm. but there's still stuff that I hadn't actually addressed. Mm -hmm. And so when I finally chose to address those, and one of the reasons I did that is because I looked at my daughter one day and I went, what are you doing? You're going to repeat the same Same cycle. cycle. The thing you promised not to do. Yeah. is repeat that cycle with your daughter. If you don't actually address this stuff, you're just going to keep, you know, I didn't want her thinking she had to grow up with the hair, the makeup, needing validation and all the chaos, you know, because of what I didn't address. Mm-hmm. Right. And so that was my motivation to do that. And of course I have my husband who's pretty awesome right. <laughs> and he made it safe. Yeah. So I, I, I got so much. Here. I know I, we don't have enough time. Uh, look, I, <laughs> Tana, you mentioned you know all that, but in the end, you've had a problem with trust the whole oh, yeah. the whole way through, and now you're mentioning your your husband and and you you started you went through a divorce evidently, so we we didn't get to that part, but now you're going through a position where you haven't trusted anyone. How did you let that guard back yeah. down to start trusting after all you've been through? 
Well, the truth is, um, he would tell you I, I broke his heart for a year and a half and I, I drove him crazy because I wouldn't commit. Um, I wasn't trying to, but I was very honest with him. I'm like, you don't want any part of this. Like, I'm just a mess right now. And I didn't trust him because I thought nobody's that nice. My radar was not set to notice someone as nice as my husband. Um, I thought he's manipulating me somehow. Nobody's mm-hmm. this nice. I kept waiting for the other shoe to fall. He really is that nice, but I couldn't see it. And so I remember talking to one of my friends. And I'm like, look, all men are jerks. And she's like, you know, your problem isn't the men you meet. It's the ones you give your phone number to. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was like, oh, ow. Burn. And it's because I was only <laughs> noticing those people because I hadn't done the work on myself and water seeks its own level. Mm-hmm. And Because a- so, assholes came off as authentic and the nice guys right. were manipulative. I thought they were manipulative. Yeah. I met nice guys all the time. And I'm like, I passed them right by. Yeah. So, so I met my husband. But the difference was my husband recognized what was going on with me. And so mm. there's, there's actually, we won't get into detail because we don't have time, but there's stories in the book about how he introduced me to a couple of people. He took me to a Byron Katie event and she's sort of mind bending. And he, his first gift to me was 10 sessions of EMDR therapy. And I'm like, all right, I'm not sure how to take that. But anyways, <laughs> so, it's like, it's like buying a girlfriend, like a exercise bike or something like that. Right? Like, there you go. Right, you're just not sure what to do with that. Man. <laughs> but, I, uh, but no, he made it safe and he was, you know, I ended up he's just my rock. I mean, he's my best friend. And, and I decided I was never getting married again, unless I could talk to him the way I talk to a girlfriend. I don't know if you guys have ever heard a group of girls talking, but they're, they're pretty, um, guys, women, like people think guys are bad when they're talking. Women are way worse. Yeah. So yeah, we're way worse, especially nurses. So I thought, you know, unless I can tell him like the gritty details of like the worst things, I'm not getting married ever again. And so I did, and he wouldn't go away. So I thought, okay, well, that's a good sign. And that's when he said, you need to write a book. This book Mm. can help people. And at Mm. first I was like, you're out of your mind. Like it took me about five years at least to decide to write a book. Well, let's, let's talk about the book a little bit. Um, and I know you said it was, it was challenging for you to actually get to the point to write it because you know, the, the judgment that comes from writing a memoir about yourself, right. Is, is difficult. Um, but obviously, you know, the support of your husband and, and probably a few others in your life that encourage you that knew your journey and knew your story and, and knew how it could impact, you know, our, 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 our country or our, our planet really. Um, but like, when you get there, you know, and I want to kind of break down, you know, the, the title, right? Relentless Courage of a, of, a, of a Scared Child. And you're not just speaking about a child, but like talk about who you're really trying to connect with in this book. And, and for our listeners out there that obviously can, there's, there's so many of you that can relate to, to your journey, but like, wh- who did you write this book for? So as you might imagine, I had issues with addiction. And, and people who did drugs because of my, my background. And I was speaking, it came from an epiphany. I was speaking to one of the largest, to a group of addicts at one of the largest recovery, um, you know, chemical addiction recovery programs in the country. Mm-hmm. It's 185 beds and they've got their families there. And I'm getting on stage and I realize how judgmental I am in that moment. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I don't like these people. I don't want to be here. Mm-hmm. And so, and I had told my husband before I went, I'm like, God picked the wrong person. I don't want to do this. I, what am I going to teach these people? And I'm on stage and I'm thinking, what am I going to teach these people about gluten and dairy when they're mm-hmm. jonesing for a pipe and a needle? And mm-hmm. that was the thought that entered my mind. And I realized we are so far apart. And when you have thoughts like that, how are you ever going to connect with someone? Yeah. How are you ever going to make things better when that's your, your thought? So I said a quick prayer 
I was like praying and I always do that before I go on. And I thought, you know, just let me set aside my own pride. Let me set aside my own judgments long enough that if one person needs to hear something, you know, mm -hmm. they can. And as I'm on stage, all of a sudden, like this thought hits me. Um, these people, I look out and I see scared children, just like I was at mm -hmm. one point. I'm like, I didn't see addicts all of a sudden. I'm like, I don't know why they turned right. I turned left. We went different. I have no idea. That's above my pay grade. What I do know is if I can get back to that time when we were just all scared little kids, mm -hmm. then I can connect with them. And I think that's true with almost anything. When I look at the pain in our country right now, over politics, over race, over whatever. It's like, we just forget our humanity. Yeah, we forget right. that at one time, you know, we could play in the sandbox together and not think about those things. Mm -hmm. And it's just, why can't we come back to that place? Mm -hmm. oh, so strong. we can connect. I love strong. that. Yeah. And then, and again, I want to, cause there's so much in the title of the book, I think that that can be spoken to, but you know, I love, I love the word grit. Like that was, that's just one of my favorite words and favorite attributes that, that someone can uh, describe you as right. I love that. But reluctant healer, why did you choose that phrase? And how does that, how does that relate to the readers? Well, it starts with the phrase that I just told you when I, when I told my husband, God picked the wrong person this time. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And he looked at me and he said, no, God picked the perfect person. He's like, you just have to be honest. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, that's not happening. No one's going to mm -hmm. know. I wasn't ready to tell my story at that point. Mm -hmm. um, I had disconnected from most of my family members. The, so besides my mom, I pretty much disconnected from anyone that caused any kind of chaos or drama. No one was allowed to like step foot in my house mm -hmm. that was part of that world and, you know, police calling and throwing stuff. And mm -hmm. so I disconnected. But all of a sudden I felt God calling me back to help my dad, who I hadn't spoken to in years, my sister, who was an addict. I now have my nieces living with me um, and I didn't want to do it. So I was very reluctant. And, <clears throat> but I, I continually felt this nudge to help people I didn't want to help. Mm -hmm. And after I did, I realized if you win an argument with God, you lose. If you lose an argument with God, you win. Mm -hmm. And so that's when I, when I finally was able to do that and, and reconnect with these people, I re even with the, the people in the rehabilitation center. Mm -hmm. After I connected, even though I thought it so much, I realized God had called me to help all of those people because they needed the help, but I needed the healing. Mm -hmm. I almost all of that healing because I was refusing to help. And and the, the help was for them, but the healing was for me. Man, that's strong. That yeah. I I love that though. Yeah. I love because yeah, we look at helping others like Hey, we're coming from a place where we've got it figured out and we can help you and we can help you and I'm doing you a favor. But in reality, the healing aspect that comes with helping others, I mean, is exponential from that. But in your yeah. experience and people you've come across, I mean, I do feel like we're somewhat wired in a way to be reluctant healers. Like for some mm -hmm. reason, we would rather stay in that place of chaos or place of pain than actually go through the healing. Why do you think that is? Well, it's protective. I mean, I, you know, I, I made a promise to myself and to my family that I was not going to raise my daughter in the same chaos I was raised in. Mm -hmm. And I did a good job with that. I kept the chaos out. So, but that meant not letting certain people in yeah. and, and make no mistake. I still have boundaries. There are still some people I don't let in. Mm -hmm. There are still some people that are so toxic that I can love them from a distance. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. I might even send them a check. I might, you know, give them a call, but I need to love some people in my family from a distance. And there's nothing yeah. wrong with that. There is though. nothing wrong with that. No. I, I mean, there's so many people that feel like, well, I got to love everyone the same and love all my family. No, all your family members are not the same. 
No. And some of them are and, so toxic. They'll just, and so for me, is yeah. I run it through a filter of, I have these boundaries. Can you respect them without bullying, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. you know, threatening or causing chaos? And if you can't respect those boundaries, then I need to love you from a distance. Yeah. All right. Yeah. As we wrap up here, I mean, there's so many different Gosh, yeah. nuggets of, of gold in here, like I talked about earlier. One thing I do want to get to uh, before we talk about where people can find your book, uh, you talked about, you mentioned a little bit this year and the, obviously the pandemic and, and the challenges that this year has brought. Uh, you have four daily habits that you talk about to be mentally and physically strong going into 2021. Mm-hmm. Can you walk us through those habits real quick? Yeah. So they're based on those four circles that I talk about at Amen Clinics, the biological, the psychological, the social, the spiritual. For me to be balanced, I think of those like four tires on a car. Mm -hmm. So if one of them are out of balance, like if one of the tires goes flat, the car will drive for a little while, but it's eventually if you more than one goes flat, it's going to crash, right? Mm -hmm. My car had flipped at one time. So for me, it's important to keep the biology, the psychology, the social and spiritual in balance. Mm -hmm. So eating healthy and exercise is my biology. That's that's during this pandemic, more than ever, it's mm-hmm. important to mm-hmm. keep your immune system strong by doing that. Then you've got the psychology. You have to manage your mind. Your thoughts lie to you. They lie a lot. You've got to talk back to them. You've got to manage your mind going through this. More than ever, our thoughts are just out of control. Mm-hmm. So we've got to manage that. And for me, that means turning off the news. <laughs> so oh, well, I shut true. the news off. I don't want to hear it. <laughs> when I meditate and I pray, which is my spiritual circle, I meditate and I pray and I don't have the news on guess what? Things don't seem so bad in the world. Right. Mm -hmm. And then reaching out and helping people is another way that I actually, it makes me feel better. Mm -hmm. And so that's part of my social circle, my social circle, who you hang out with. Um, So doing this right now with you guys, this is super cool. Mm -hmm. You know, I joined a a zoom prayer group um, doing things for my family. That's the social circle. Just because we are physically distanced, not socially distanced, physically distanced does not mean we need to disconnect. And so those four things are going to keep you in balance during this time. And it, it takes discipline because it's just so easy right now to just let your mind go wild. You know, what I love about that is it's four, right? You have one for each category. You're not saying, Hey, do these 10 different things in the biology category, do these 12 different things in the uh, psychology category. I love that it's four steps that literally anyone can apply Mm -hmm. and, and put into action. So where this, this episode is going to air, I think a couple of days before the book releases, where can people find your book and hear more about this amazing story? So anywhere that books are sold, I mean, you can get it pretty much anywhere, Amazon and such, but we have lots of gifts, almost $500 worth of gifts. If you go to relentlesscourage.com, I've got a whole bunch of gifts to help you start to write the story of your life, to rewrite the ending and make it more empowering and wonderful. And my husband and I created a course to go along with that. Just a very simple, short course, um, just to help you empower you with what you've been through. So we intentionally relentlesscourage.com uh, we we intentionally not really because we could talk for hours on this but um but we wanted to to leave enough because you've got to go get the book yes. like i i can't wait to go yeah. to get the book and read this because i mean there's just enough like we learned enough about you today that like i'm super excited because i i can't imagine how incredible this book is going to be so anybody listening please please go get this book find it relentless courage um and again the the name of the book and i'm going to make sure cuz it's it's not a short title uh Relent, <laughs> relentless courage of a scared child how persistent grit and faith created a reluctant healer again january 5th anywhere that books are sold ben no 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 before ben oh. Tana, Tana, i got a question because ben's going to close it out with a with a question but i you know your story is amazing and 
you've gone through so much in your life. I just, I have one question for you because I'm listening to your story and in the, in the end, I always, I just wanted to come back to you to find out how do you personally define happiness because of what you've gone through because of, you know, just hearing your story right now. I'm like, it's emotional to hear, you know, at a young age, you know, two, four years old and 12 years. I mean, just to hear your story and all the things you've had to overcome. How do you, personally define happiness? You know, honestly, I think it's just being content with what I have and where I'm at in life. Um, I just celebrated my 52nd birthday and my husband asked me what I wanted. And I thought there's not anything I want other than my family right here, right now. Mm -hmm. And that for me made me feel so filled up and content that there's just nothing that I want. I finally can get what I want. <laughs> I just don't want yeah. anything. Right. That's awesome. <laughs> That's yeah. awesome. That is awesome. I Aaron, why don't you I think that content. way? I do. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Our final question. This is what we ask every single guest. Um, if you could go back to any point in your life, and tell yourself one thing doesn't necessarily mean you go change anything, but if you could just go back and tell yourself one thing, where do you go and what do you tell yourself? I would go back to that scared child who used to hide under her pillows and I would tell her she's going to be a badass. Mm. That's right. <laughs> Let's That's go. Right. <laughs> Mike drop. Best answer of our short <laughs> podcast in life. That's awesome. That is awesome. Well, Tana, thank you, you so, guys are so much. Fun. Stay, no, we've got it. We've got no, to get a, you brought the get fun. We're one. just a bunch of meatheads. I know. I, I mean, <laughs> I, I really do. I mean, I say this from the bottom of my heart. You, my wife reminds me so much of you and, and, and I think that you guys would connect and I mean the strength that, uh, that you yeah. both have, I mean, it's, and I'm, I'm literally listening to your story and there's so many similarities to my wife and, um, man, I just thank you for, for the time and, and sharing, sharing yeah. your message and, and thank you for writing the book. Like I haven't read it yet, but thank you for, for sharing your, your testimony, uh, your story. Um, and, and hopefully this yeah. is going to affect a lot of people, uh, for the better. Cause I mean, God knows that our country needs, Absolutely. needs a lot of yeah. encouragement right now. Yeah. So. I mean, really, like her story is exactly what our show is, right? And, mm -hmm. and I just want to sum it up with this because our show really is about the journey and, and the trials and tribulations, but like, don't let that define you because you are, you are meant, every, God designed us all to do something in this life mm -hmm. while we're here. And, and, but don't let those terrible circumstances that are not of him control the rest of you and, and, and the purpose that he has for you and the yep. journey that you can overcome those things. And, and you're not defined by the things that happen to you. It's what you do mm -hmm. to respond to those. Yeah. Yeah. Her story hits on all three That's pillars. Right. We talk about it. That's perspective, awesome. resilience, and encouragement. That's yeah. right. That's Man, exactly right. Can't read to read the book. Thank you so much. Thank you, Tana. I'm Appreciate so grateful it. to you guys. Thank you so much. Thanks, Tana.